Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast contains explicit language. That's like the big problem with podcasts is that there's no platform for emojis on this at all. Somehow we have to we have to figure it out. The Huffington Post is going to figure out a way to get emojis on the podcast. That's our fucking mission. So that happened. This week, the Koch brothers announced that they have budgeted a cool $889 million for the 2016 election. To put that in perspective, if you stacked $889 million one by one on the table, I would knock you over the head and steal as much of it as I can. Meanwhile, as Congress grinds steadily onward, it looks like at least one part of President Obama's announced agenda may come to pass. Spoiler alert, it will be the trade deal that many liberals loathe. As for the community college plan that many liberals love, well, that suffered a setback. Finally, it's Super Bowl weekend. What time is the Super Bowl? We're not going to answer that question, but we will talk about all the hilarious things that happened during Media Week in Arizona. I'm Jason Lincolns with Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney, and here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I keep saying welcome back, even though it's just like, it's like on the internet. Like, do we ever really leave the internet? But welcome back. So that happened. Uh, we're here with... Arthur Delaney. And... Zachary Douglas Bell Carter. And I'm Jason Lincolns, as no, always. Wait, wait a minute. Bell, yeah, got four of them from, from from the south, and that's how we do it. Oh there. man, there insufferable! Go. There you go. You should hear my mom say it when I when I am in trouble. It <sighs> is awful. So let's talk about our week. I wanted to say I am reading finally this amazing book called H H H H by Laurent Binet. Also pronounced. <sighs> it combines two of my favorite things. Yes, exactly. It combines two of my favorite things, French experimental literature and killing fascists, specifically Nazis. Ah, très bien. Yeah, it's, uh, like, it's a great book about <laughs> it's a great book about a plot to murder a Nazi in Czechoslovakia by these two Czech parachutists. It's awesome. Zach, you'd be all into this I book. I would probably love it. I'm reading uh, Julian by Gore Vidal about uh, late uh, late Roman Emperor Julian, last of the, uh, the pagan Roman emperors, just terrific. That's awesome, Gore Vidal. I'm reading Dead. Sugar in the Blood about the sugar trade and the rise of slavery in the Caribbean. We're so fucking erudite. You know what else <laughs> I read though that I thought was awesome? What? Mark Leibovich's profile of Tom Brady, America's winner. <laughs> that was me, guys. And and I read all the I read all the coverage <laughs> whining about the Patriots. It it, it moved on from Deflategate. People got bored of Deflategate because it's obviously uh, a phony whiner loser story, and they switched <laughs> no. to this. They switched to this BS about the statistical, you know, the statistical significance of when they fumble. Yes, and this guy is like, "Oh, it's impossible for them to fumble so little. It's so, a conspiracy since 2006." <laughs> For, it was the bunks by Deadspin. It's a loser story, and the Patriots are going to win. They're America's team. For our listeners in Palau, uh, we're talking about the upcoming Super Bowl, which is this weekend, one day after the big UVA Duke game. And uh, uh, the New England Patriots playing the Seattle Seahawks, and the Patriots have been 
embattled by the Deflategate controversy. I just cannot believe that Arthur And also embattled by the fact that they're a bunch of raving douche lords. I mean, I just I mean, sure, I I'm I'm sympathetic to the argument that the Patriots would have won the game against the Colts anyway. Well, I don't they would have. The Colts were terrible. They, they got they got destroyed and and the balls were switched out at halftime and I mean, but still, I don't understand why it's okay to wantonly break the rules just just because you're also you also happen to be good. I don't I don't see why that sets a good precedent for the NFL and why they shouldn't come down hard on 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 the Patriots for doing it. It's not like it's the first time the Patriots have been caught cheating under Bill Belichick. None of these cheating scandals are le- are like really convincing, damning cheating scandals. Okay, the football was underinflated in the first half of a game. Wow, how is it obvious to anybody how that's advantageous? So, uh, and multitudes of NFL quarterbacks, including, for example, Eli Manning, who was fabulous, said, "I don't even see how that helped them." The other and the reason this, but Brad Johnson, who quarterbacked in a Super Bowl, talked about deflating the balls because it allowed him to get a better grip. Right. Well, that is the putative reason, and I'm just saying it's not something universal. You you know, I think it was uh, there was a report. I forget who actually dropped the dime on this, but uh, someone from the Knicks back. Remember when the Knicks actually won basketball games when they were on their championship run. They said, as a matter of course, what they would do was deflate the basketball uh, so that it, uh, so that uh, it, you, the, because they weren't a tall team, when the ball uh, rebounded, it wouldn't go far, and they could just box out bigger teams and get the ball. And also, teams couldn't break on them because it was dribbling was slow. The Knicks at the time favored like a passing so, game, uh, so they my, didn't my, put the ball on the floor. So my point so, here, so people do take these advantages, whether it's cheating or not, or just pushing the the envelope. That's a different story. There, there's a rule. There. Envelope. There's a, there's a rule on the books. If you don't want to have a rule on the books, don't have the rule. You don't have to do that. They've got that's the rule. The point. Patriots know when they broke can it. I, can I bring something up? You 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 sort of come to this with the expectation that the NFL should. Crack down on the Patriots. Yes. So I'm going to make a list right now of all the professional sports leagues that really go all out to uh, to uh, to 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 punish cheaters. There, I'm done. There, I'm done. <laughs> Very well done. I didn't hear any names. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a joke, Arthur. Oh, it was a jape. <laughs> I mean, and and let's also let's also point out that the NCAA program is basically mass theft of uh, generally lower income people. So that's uh, that's pretty bad too. Yeah. A lot of, there are bigger problems in Deflategate. I agree, but the fact that uh, flopping you know, in soccer is pretty bad. Yeah, but but the fact that oh, hate that flopping. Uh, you know, but that, now that is cheating. <laughs> if there's cheating in a big sport, it's the flopping in the soccer. Ooh, <laughs> don't even get me started. Now that is cheating. We don't we don't do that in America. Don't we? That's European <laughs> stuff. Yep, that's right. Because we're too tough in America <laughs> we to cheat, all the Tom time Brady. We're too tough to cheat, and, and we should be too tough to whine. Mm. But we're not. So, so okay, can, <laughs> can I talk about? Let me let me just say the whiniest shit coming out of Super Bowl Media Week has been all the poor, poor, poor sports reporters who can't get Marshawn Lynch oh, to answer scumbags. any of their stupid questions. Now, and this is and this is why the Marshawn Lynch, who refuses to talk and is repeatedly fined by the NFL for this. Is, but they is, keep changing the rules on how to find Marshawn Lynch for this. And, and they're hypocrites because Roger Goodell doesn't talk to the media. He's a hypocrite. In spite of this and the amazing Richard Sherman, who is like the best uh, – like media talker, media talker, in and, he, and he wrote a great thing in Sports Illustrated this week. I still want the Patriots to win. 
I don't see how you could root against Richard Sherman if you are uh, a fan of the Washington football That's what's team amazing. and don't have a, a horse in this fight. Uh, it's going to be a, <laughs> can I say, or, it's gonna be a great game. It's going to be a great game. It's going to be a horse fight. Is that, is it's going to be a horse battle. First of all, the sports reporters at these stupid press conferences, they come to it with questions. and All they're really seeking is like a platitude about do you think he can win? Have you ever heard his teammate go, I'm actually skeptical that what we're doing is working? You know, it's just crazy. Well, so so they have, like, they Marshawn Lynch, he doesn't want to talk to the media. He's explained in the past that he doesn't want to talk about his exploits because he feels like he doesn't do them alone. That, it, that by him talking about his triumphs on the field, he's shorting his teammates, specifically his offensive line and his tight end. So he doesn't like to talk about it. He doesn't like to offer em- empty platitudes. And so he does this kind of, like, meta thing where he says one answer the whole time all the time he's all the time these reporters are asking stupid questions and i've never seen a reporter actually stand up and say i asked a great question of marshawn lynch and i can defend how awesome my question is because they're not meanwhile you have richard sherman okay who in the biggest moment of speaking honestly about what he was all about, got pilloried for it. Yes. Got pilloried for yeah. it. And so it's just like, what What do you want these players to do? It's crazy. You're, and you're referencing, of course, last year's. As be, be subservient platitude offers. That's why when you listen to press conferences after sports games, uh, sports games, I sound like a fucking idiot saying that, after 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 any sporting competition, like a lot of reporters will just simply say, dressage. Oh, talk about the XYZ. Yeah. They don't actually ask questions. They're just like, could you go on an extended monologue? I'm just going to write stuff down. That's what they do in the Capitol, too. Senator, uh, talk about this. Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels, Line actually, between between sports reporting and political reporting because some of the best journalism out there is sports reporting, but it's always really in-depth sort of investigative business journalism that combines you know that, that stuff with what's happening on the field. And the worst stuff is just like, man, Marshawn Lynch really gave it 110% today. That's why they beat the Eagles or whoever the hell they were playing. And we do that in, <laughs> in political journalism, too. The worst kind of political journalism is like, oh, snap, Hillary said what? Yeah, and that happens true. all the time. But, th- but there's a lot of really great political journalism too that combines what's you know what's obvious to people from the press conference realm of, of politics with with deep investigative stuff that, that people don't actually want, want it would be great if lindsey graham came out came out of the senate chamber like uh you know we went out there and gave it our all and i uh, can't take anything away from the democrats they're a great team uh, I, was, I think the republicans just wanted it more today I was, balls, really. I was laughing so hard at the second Marshawn Lynch press conference, the one that happened yesterday. It was funny. Because those reporters— You mean the one that happened on Wednesday? Yes, yeah, sorry. The one that happened on Wednesday. Um, because those reporters actually came with a strategy to try to, like, shame Marshawn Lynch into talking by talking about sentimental things to which he's attached, like fans in various countries, fans in Seattle. They would be like, talk about your charity drive. And Marshawn Lynch is sitting there knowing full well that he, if he launches into like an extended riff about the charity works at, there isn't a fucking one of those reporters who's actually going to put in the lead of their story about the Super Bowl that Marshawn Lynch gives to charity. Not a fucking one of them. You know, the whole thing becomes a complete exercise and like standoff. And the thing I don't understand is just like, you know, he's not going to answer. Why don't we just dispense with this all together? There's 40 some odd other players you could talk to. If 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 when Marshawn Lynch shows up, have the dignity to be like, you know what, dude, you don't like doing this. That's cool. Bring me someone new. And you know what? He gave them something easy to write about. And they were still like, Marshawn Lynch should talk more. There was one guy, one Minnesota reporter 
who uh, I, this is like this is like hubris and arrogance. I he he basically said is like, you know what, Marshawn Lynch should understand that like without the media. People like him would be playing for eight dollars in a parking lot, oh, that's and typical. I'm like, no, they wouldn't. Typical yeah. for people from Minnesota to act like that. No, that was a hot. It's not Minnesota at all. People that was from Minnesota a hot are so typical nice. Minnesota. That was people a hot take so to nice. warm the Minnesotans in their long winter. Oh God, Minnesota, People from Minnesota are really nice. Minneapolis is one of the great cities of the world. Yeah. Oh, you know, no, you know no who uh, wouldn't talk to the media for his rookie season. The senator from Minnesota, Al Franken. Yeah, he talked to local media though. He would, right. right, but if you were if you were at the Capitol, you'd say, "Hey, Senator Franken, could I get a quote on this?" He'd be like, "Nope." Yep. Yeah. And you know, you know who died because of that? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> and you know what? He did talk to local media, so his constituents were well informed. He also occasionally talked to national media. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna give everyone here I'm gonna give everyone here a little tip during the presidential election. Um, your presidential candidates are going to go across the country and they're going to be making, you know, whistle stops, campaign stops, talking to people. And there will be reporters Stop. covering it there. If you want to know the substance of what they talk about at these campaign stops, go first to the local reporters and then drill outward. Because it's the it's places like the Des Moines Register that are less likely to be like, oh, my God, what a gaffe. Did you hear the pronoun he fucked up and totally changed the meaning of his whole economic plan? What does the term drill – where does that metaphor come from, drill outward? I don't know. I just made it up. Drill outward. It's when you're See, trying to escape trapped. from Alcatraz. <laughs> when you're trapped in a coffin of your own you in a mine, yeah. <laughs> you drill outward. I'm making, From the Des Moines Register. We're both. <laughs> see, I like how we're both doing like bracing bit drilling. Like we're like we're Amish people. Uh, Jason, nobody can see you. Well, that's why I'm being radio. illustrative in my descriptions of what we are doing in this room. Let's do some politics now. Okay, so the biggest the biggest politics news this week. I mean, I'm just going to – I don't know if this is the biggest part. No, I think it's fair, and I think you've got to be bold and, you know, uh, don't Make hold it back. So. I can't – I'm, I'm, I don't okay. sell it short like that. God You're damn right. it. Okay. It was the biggest part. The most, the most dick-gripping political event this, this week uh, was the news wow. that, the, that the, the Brothers Coke, who are one of our band of uh, bil- weird, weird billionaires who run the country now – announced that they were going to pony up $889 million uh, to to spread around uh, during the upcoming election, just to put it in context. Now, uh, maybe I should run for Congress as a Republican, just for the Coke money. The presidential candidates last year, I believe, combined to spend on their own, without any help from donors, a billion dollars on an election. And and I think we all got through that election thinking at the end of it, well, that was worth spending a billion dollars on. Well, you know, one of the things that's funny, though, about, about the way money in politics works, though, and you occasionally see this, at least you used to see it in, in George Will columns from time to time, is that, you know, if, if we're talking about going from a $1 billion election now to a $2 billion election, maybe a $2.5 billion election, something like that. It's inevitable. It's about $2.5 Right, sure. Um that's still a tiny number relative to the overall economy. So people who are in favor of more money in politics say, hey, what's the big deal? This is like less money than we spend on M&Ms or something. And that's the point is that a billion dollars to the Koch brothers doesn't matter because they've got several billion dollars. It ends up being a really good investment. $43 for billion them. each. To yeah. Be honest, so they're able they're – Oh, able man. To- this is dandruff. 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's like toilet paper money for them, except, except you know, people who spend money on toilet paper usually actually like have to ha- have have other financial constraints that, that make their life make, make the toilet paper more say, costly. People who usually spend money on toilet paper have to poop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Cook well, brothers got bidet people. Follow them around with bidets. But the, the, the point is that right here with your bidet, sir. If if it, if it actually cost a fortune for these people to uh, killing you know, Earth right to, now to, to own to own the political system, they might not actually spend that much money on it. But because it doesn't cost a fortune to them, a billion dollars to the Koch brothers is not that much money. It's a really great investment, and it's a way to throw power around and have fun, and it gives you something to do when you're tired of you know cornering oil markets. Well, here, and stuff. so here's the way to understand the amount that they're spending relative to what's going on. Their outlays that the, you know that they have announced they hope to spend in the 2016 election are about what uh, a presidential nominee and his party apparatus are expected to spend on each side. So the Kochs are like another candidate. Right. And they're basically just like we're, uh, we're an additional – we're like doubling the Republican spending. But this is not a whole lot out of proportion from what they did – in the previous, from what uh, you know, rich Republican donors did in the previous election, it's not. It's just like uh, a little bit more. Well, remember reports for for Carl Rove, right? That, that he had he had uh, organized something between three hundred million and four hundred million dollars right. on behalf of Republican candidates in two thousand twelve, and Republicans had a pretty rough night in two thousand twelve. Uh, yeah, it did. Carl Rove had a rougher night. <laughs> Carl Rove that, that was one reason. Night. It was like, uh, wait. Why are we supposed to get, you know, flip our wigs about this spending plan that the Koch bro- brothers have hatched when they had a similar diabolical money bomb in 2012 and it didn't work at all? You know, what I'll say is that I think that I think that when we talk about this, we should keep in mind uh, that there are a lot of other elections than just the presidential election. Like, I'll, I'll be honest with you, $889 billion. I'll be surprised if all of that necessarily goes to a presidential election because inevitably you run out of sheer space on television to run ads. Yes. You know, it, it's you get to a point where it's like completely inflated. And I think the expectations become completely inflated. This, this You run out of advisors to pay. You run out of stuff to do. I don't think you can possibly run out of hangers-on who will convince you that they need your money. People get so rich off these but campaigns. You should also remember, though, that Republicans have been very, very good at uh, at, at organizing at the state level. And state legislatures and, and governorships are dominated by Republicans. Correct. Uh, and even in elections where they do poorly at, at the top of the ticket, uh, they often they often do quite well in, uh, in, in, mu- in much lower-lying races right. that people don't – don't and and these are the state houses that will wind up drawing the boundaries for the the national fight. Yeah, and I think you can buy a state house. I think I don't I'm not sure yet. We can. We're at the point where you can buy an election, but still, it is like you know we keep witnessing this this whole period of watching our erstwhile uh, or sorry, the erstwhile is not the right word to use there. Never mind our ersatz. I think uh, uh, leaders like weekend after weekend spending. Uh, on bent and stooped knee before weird, crazy old billionaires. Right, it's this club of like four hundred people. Yeah, who everybody's like, got to got to. You watch that. Thing. You watch that, and you think, God, these people are going to be running the country, you know. And it's like, it, can you really say that America is a strong nation when its leaders have to do that? You know, the thing I'm fond of reminding people is that the only person that Chris Christie's ever apologized to is Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. You know, it's well, like it's like, what does it take to break Chris Christie? The right dollar amount. I mean, and so so that's the thing, you know, money in politics, despite what the uh, Supreme Court has ruled repeatedly now, uh, is by definition corrupt. 
It is corruption. That's what it means. I mean, in corruption, we are talking about buying elections, buying politicians. Right. That's but because corruption. we can't say quid pro quo, because we can't say bribe, because we're not William Jefferson with money stuffed in my freezer. Right. It all it, we're, we're allowed to think it's all on the up and up. But it is kind of a well, corruption. People, I wonder if uh, people who are less, you know, don't even are not even casual consumers of news even understand that this is money going into a campaign account. It doesn't go right into your freezer if you're running for office. Because because there's the other stories that talk about how well politicians do when they're done with their time in office. They're always turning rich. But it's not because the campaign money goes into their personal bank account. Yeah. Because they do favors for the people who gave them the campaign money, and then those people do them favors. But it's these unquantifiable, uh, unquantifiable relationship building and things of that nature that make you rich. But the I just, I just feel like maybe that's something – the it's, political it, reporters ought to, ought to make sure a, they're making clear. It's a remarkable historical reversal from uh, from other uh, empires in history. Other empires in history, you get rich by being in office. You don't get rich when you leave office. It's uh, it's it's a different type of uh, different type of corruption, but it's still corruption nonetheless. We do have the uh, relative to median income, the highest paired, or at least uh, maybe one other country, Japan, has a. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Better paid legislature. And the whole point of the high salary we give members of Congress, it's, it's $175,000, is so that they are not corrupted by the need to make themselves rich doing favors for people who want to buy policies. I think that I think that when we talk about money in politics being corrupted, it's easy for the people who want to continue this corruption to say it's not corruption. It's very cloudy. Um, Zephyr Teachout has a really great book out now very called Corruption in America. And one of the points she makes over and over again is that what's changed is the occlusion of what we consider to be corruption. It's no longer, hey, I'm handing you some walking around money to get the votes. It's much more subtle and much more, you know, it's like in the cloud, like everything else. Um, <laughs> but what I keep coming back to is this, we just talked about how $889 million is, as you said, dandruff to the Koch brothers. Doesn't mean shit to them. Doesn't mean anything to them. But the $889 that an average person might donate to the candidate of choice, for a lot of people, that's dear. That's hard to part with. And yet you get almost nothing for the effort. Yes. Nothing I mean, for the, the effort. Thing. So it, your place in the democracy, in this democracy we have now. squished. It's you don't have one. You just don't have a place in this democracy. You can donate money, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's not going to get you anything or anywhere. You know, you're completely subsumed within this sort of 
plutocratic, you know, cloud that now dominates right. the landscape. Your, your marginal $25 contribution, which you skimp on toilet paper to make, uh, is is not going to win anybody's anybody's election. No. So that's uh, – it's, it's, And it's certainly not going to win anybody's attention. And there is high correlation uh, between, you know, what – who your, – your, 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 your representatives on the Hill, who they talk to. If, like, someone can go to them and say, hey, this guy donated, you know – $10,000 to you. You get a meeting. If you're a fucking nobody, you don't get a meeting with that guy. But in the aggregate, being able to say that a certain percentage of the nearly billion dollars that they spent have been raised in small dollar donations is a real feather in a cap for a campaign. But it's, and that's, what that's PR. Barack Obama, that's PR. That's phony baloney. Yeah, it's PR. And you talk to people who uh, donate these small amounts and they feel that it, it you know, makes them a part of what's going on. It Everyone's going to say they got small donations. There's no one who's there, there's no candidate for president going to say, "Hey, I got four hundred two billion dollar donations." <laughs> you know, they're all going to talk about their small donors. You know, it's 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 just nah. I'm not. I don't. I don't and so we, it's, I think we sort of agree that the uh, what's corrupting about it is that our our big shots in politics to get this money have to go hang out. At resorts with these billionaire billionaires and sort of make a speech where they're really only addressing one or two people, which was how people described the uh, the Koch brothers retreat that and had, the Adelson had, retreat from a few months ago. Right. Uh, whereas, like, there's a room full of people, but you're really just flattering the ones with the big bucks, <gasps> yeah. and that's and that's going to make you that's going to pervert your sense. Of what of what policies you should advocate for? This was actually a defense, uh, believe it or not, of uh, of Mitt Romney's infamous forty seven percent comment that Mitt Romney, in his heart of hearts, didn't actually believe that forty seven percent of the country was a bunch of loser whiners. Um, that he just felt like he had to say that because he was talking to a room full of donors. But there's this weird phenomenon that when you're surrounded by certain communities, you tend to sort of think like them. Uh, you, you become more like the community of people that you're that you're you're you're, you're flying with. And I mean, in some cases here. We're literally talking about people going on planes together. So flying with is a perfectly apt metaphor. But once once you just start being part of that of that world, you start to think like people in that world, and that and that is uh, that that is a, a a much harder thing I think for people to police against on you know on, on their own their own sort of behavior than oh well I shouldn't give you this development uh, you know contract or something if you're say the governor of whatever New Jersey or something right. Uh, do you guys want to talk about trade? Because I wrote about it this week. Yeah, yeah. so we're going to get now to like the nits and grits of what's going on. And this is uh, uh, deep within the news cycle. Uh, but we, we remember it from the big news the previous week when President Obama in his State of the Union got applause from Republicans when he talked about how he wants fast-track authority to do a big free trade deal with people across the Pacific Ocean. What? What's Meanwhile, going on? Meanwhile, Democrats were like thumbs down. Demo- right. Yeah, and Democrats yeah. were like boo. Yeah, pretty much. And that that was sort of the uh, the, the tenor of of some a couple of hearings on the Hill uh, this this week, in which uh, Ambassador Michael Froman, who you was, attended these hearings. Uh, the, the well, well, one, not the uh, not the House hearing. Dana uh, Liebelson, our other reporter who covers trade, uh, did. But but the Senate one. Um, it was it was very it was it was very cordial. Democrats they they would say you know hey we appreciate you talking to our office and then pretty much all of the substantive critiques 
of of the trade agreements in the works came from from Democrats. And it was it was a very it's a very interesting phenomenon because while this was kind of buried beneath other other I think easier less complex news for for you know the, the lay political reader to understand, this is one actual piece of legislation that has a very good chance of passing. Like some this this might actually pass because well, Republicans Republic- like it. So why wouldn't it pass? Well, we'll we'll see if if Republicans in the House in particular actually decide they still like it because there's a, there is a block of Republicans who say, well, in order to get this Trans-Pacific Partnership, this giant trade deal with Asia through, President Obama wants us to, to give him fast-track authority, which lets him put for, reach an agreement. Now, let's be clear. And, fast-track authority is what we're talking about. Well, we're actually kind of talking about both. So th- these hearings we're talking about a couple of but the, different, so different things. The but. president makes the trade deal, and he wants Congress to give him authority so that he can just have it. Right, so them screwing with right. So when he puts the when he presents them with a trade agreement, they can't amend they can't amend it on the floor. So so they'll pass fast track, and then at a later time they would have the opportunity to say yes or no to the deal. That's right, Right. and but they won't be able to alter the deal. And and remember, there's there's a wing of the Republican Party that is very very uncomfortable with the idea of handing President Barack Obama extra power. They've been railing about it for a long time because it would be kind of weird. (laughs) Is this economic populist or is just people who are like I'm against the president? There's there's some overlap. There's some overlap between those two groups. There 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 is a small economic populist wing of the uh, of the Republican Party. Uh, It's really it's really uh, Walter Jones, who's Republican from North Carolina, and uh, whoever he can sort of organize to stand with him. And usually, I think he makes these types of Pitches about how this is this is giving up our sovereignty to other countries, right. or this is giving the president too much power. We're we're shirking our constitutional duties, checks and balances, things like that. Even though this is what Congress has done with weird, the, like weird NAFTA, moment. for example, had fast track. The, right, but it it is often disputed. So it's it a weird become, moment of common cause with say environmentalists for whom this issue of sovereignty falls heavily because they right. want to you know obviously pass regulations that keep us alive. Right. And and so that's the, the sovereignty issue uh, has came up a couple of times at, at the Senate hearing. That, that is the, the, un, under these trade bills, the way they're usually structured in the way the, the big the big Pacific trade deal, which is with a lot of very large countries like Japan, which is the third largest country in the in economy in the world. So that I means significant economic effects from, from this type of deal. They they don't allow one country to bring a trade dispute with another country the way you do under, say, the World Trade Organization treaties. Like if if Ford Motor Company is really mad at somebody, is mad at China or something, they have to bring a complaint to the United States. The United States brings a complaint before the WTO against China. And then then they they work this out as a political thing between between different nations. Under these deals, corporations can just supersede the entire national court – jurisdictional regulatory structure and say, we don't like this nation's laws or regulations. We want to challenge it before an international tribunal. And you have the corporation before and, and the country competing o- over those rules. So environmentalists and, and labor rights people and, and lots of other sort of traditionally liberal oriented groups have been very upset about that type of mechanism. But there is some overlap with conservatives in the House who say, well, well wait a minute. Why are we giving foreign corporations the right to challenge our laws before an international court. That doesn't seem like what, a very conservative Can you think of a situation where, where a hypothetical where this actually happens and somebody in the United States, like a worker, is screwed over because uh, a, a foreign company – was able to go around our laws. Well, it's it's been happening. Uh, our companies have U.S. companies have been suing Canada uh, repeatedly under NAFTA. Uh, it's become much more popular over uh, over all sorts of different things, from you know prescription drug uh, you know g- policies for generic drugs to offshore drilling. All sorts of things like that have been happening, uh, and they 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 were not a big deal around the time NAFTA was passed in 1993. You would see maybe four or five of these. Now things wait a minute, year. prescription drugs for Canada have been helpful to U.S. consumers. They have. Been, uh, and so and so, NAFTA is allowing American companies to sue Canada for for, being, for offering too many prescription drugs. Essentially, well, screw that. You know that 
<laughs> I think people like cheap pills. Well, and that's the thing. If you if you listen to the hearing yesterday, or like Orrin Hatch, or, Orrin Hatch is a really interesting person to follow because if you just want to get the perspective that that liberal critics of of trade policies have had for several years, if you just want the exact opposite of that, you should just look at what Orrin Hatch has to say about these trade policies. And yesterday he was talking about having stronger intellectual property terms for drugs so that drug companies could have monopolies on their new drugs for a longer period of time to block generics from entering the market and offering people cheaper pills. I thought Obamacare already gave that to to big pharma. There are all sorts of things that uh, that, are, that actually go much further than Obamacare. Big Pharma wants more. Yeah. They, they are good at lobbying. And, and they use these trade deals. What happens after the trade deal happens, you cannot change the regulation going forward because you could be sued for for being in violation of the trade agreement in the future. So it's, it's not just the question of whether the policy itself is bad right now. It's whether you think conditions might change in the future that, that, could, that could cause problems. Right. I just want to point out that we were just talking a moment ago about how it's easier – you make more money out of office than in office. Like the, ba- the biggest and best example of that is – Pharma. Billy Towson. Yeah. Former. Now, so uh, the critics <laughs> of, of this trade agreement have – like so many different issues, mm-hmm. and none of not one of them seems to really dominate the others. But I wonder if uh, what is the economic argument like? If you're against this and you want to explain it to uh, a, an American person who like has a job and doesn't want to lose his or her job. Is there a way that someone's going to be lo- – how are people going to be losing their jobs because of this? Well, it, I mean it's hard to say but in, in part because the, the deal secret so we don't know the specific terms yet. But, uh, but it, particularly for the major stuff like, like the labor rights chapter, things like that. Uh, but the, the, the big worry is, is not I think so much an immediate my job's going to be offshore tomorrow kind of, kind of issue. But we are going to degrade labor standards, environmental standards around the world, which will make jobs for people everywhere a little bit worse. Um, so th- I think that's, that's the, the basic argument. But the one area where, that's, where, where I think you, you could see sort of a direct this job left here to go to another country kind of situation um, would, would be on the issue of currency manipulation. Um, countries, which gets very complicated, but I think this is actually an, an area where, where Democrats are probably going to fight and try to either get something on currency manipulation into, into the legislation or, or at least require some sort of, so, sort of uh, you know, sort of pound of flesh. So, so take me from the, word, the term currency manipulation to they took our germs. Right. So – if if you're if you have two different countries and the currency of one country is worth a lot more than the other, the currency with the cheaper the, the country with the cheaper currency is is much it's much easier to pay workers a a uh, a living wage under that cheaper valued currency for companies in the other country. So an American company can say, oh well, look, it's really expensive for us to pay our workers fifty thousand dollars a year here, but in in say China or Japan, the same living standard. Is, uh, is is effectively much cheaper because the currency differential between these two countries is so great. Even though $50,000 is worth you know, a, a much larger amount of, of yen or something or, or, or Chinese yuan or maybe whatever you have in the other country. So effectively, it allows foreign countries to pay their workers a living wage but simultaneously make that labor cheaper for foreign corporations. So it encourages other countries to offshore their jobs to those, to those countries. So, so, so a country uh, weakens its currency to give itself – uh, to to suck up the jobs, yeah, right. Bring and, the action and it, to their shores, and it's usually I think it's counterintuitive to people because of the idea of a strong currency sounds like that is a good thing for the country. But, well, yeah, strong equals good, yeah. right? Yeah. But, uh, but if you actually have a, a, a weaker currency value, uh, you you actually are able to attract more jobs without harming your your own workers because the value of the currency is the same within the national borders. It's not like all of a sudden people are like, oh, crap, I really wanted to but, buy. But what are we going to do? Uh, how how is protectionism uh, our plan? Like to. to you can't say that 
uh, people getting jobs in China are, are really just subtracting jobs from the United States. It's not like the rest of the world getting richer subtracts from mm. the affluence well, of the United States. You can make the argument that you can't, actually. With the rise uh, well, of, and economics the rise of the textbook. Chinese middle class may have been specific drag on the on the, on the on the on the on our middle class. Is that so? Is it a zero-sum game? Because that's you know that's not Econ 101. Or... Is Econ 101 wrong? Well, here's here's the thing. There's a, Arthur raises a very good point because a, a rising tide should lift all boats, as, uh, as traditional really economic should. theory says. However, um, what what we actually see happening when you have, particularly with the currency gamesmanship, what you see is a, a vast imbalance of global currency and trade flows. And so you end up with an enormous amount of capital in the United States, for instance, because the dollar is relatively strong, and an enormous amount of labor in China. And what happens when the, the United States markets are flooded with capital? <laughs> Thomas Piketty writes a book. Right. There's, there's too much credit. <laughs> Pe- people in the United States get wealthy off of capital. People who, people who are, are workers so do not. So people who already have money, like we've right. been seeing, get, get are, more money. Uh, are able to to continue getting so it's but another, there's a second it's another RNG thing but there's a second problem which is that when you flood one area with a ton of capital that capital doesn't have places to go and so you end up with credit bubbles you end up with overinvestment in things that don't need to be invested in and still you end up with with essentially financial crises so one of the arg- central arguments about uh, about the 2008 crisis that that former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke has made is that one of the main drivers of this was an imbalance in 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 global capital flows and part of that is a result of, of the type, not all of it, but some of it is due to the types of trading agreements that have been that have been going on, which have encouraged the United States to uh, to, to to keep capital here and send labor to, to other is, places. Is this reflected in the the rip roaring stock market that we've had the past few months? It's hard to say that the stock market of the last few years is due to uh, is due to the, all these old trade deals. I think that has has more to do with the policies of the Federal Reserve recently. They've been they've been intentionally buying up corporate bonds and government bonds in order to get people to bring interest rates down so that people buy stocks. Uh, instead of spend their money, uh, it's, it's instead of an invest in, in longer-term things. Yeah, so, I, I don't know what I'm going to shake my fist at here. Yeah, uh, it is. It it's is really it complicated. Is a daunting, it is a daunting issue because, like, it's, it's, it's just really hard to get to, like, a street-level explanation of this. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> Zach's talking real fast. Well, but, I'm enjoying it, but this is uh, – But the, the basic issue here break down. is that this is – we've been pursuing this, this basic sort of trade platform since the early 1990s. And we have, we have some evidence since the 1990s that this is destabilizing and that this is not – there, there are some benefits from international trade. There are actually quite a few. Lower prices – Are you talking really about NAFTA, the big NAFTA trade NAFTA and the World Trade Organization yeah. uh, and, and particularly the entrance of China into the World Trade Organization. Is there an alternate plan? Is there an alternate way of trading that we should have been doing all this time? Sure. I think you can get rid of, for instance, the, the sort of international investor ability to challenge uh, local regulations. You can have higher standards in your agreements, better, better labor standards. If, if you look at what the United States actually does, some of the provisions of things like NAFTA and WTO are actually pretty decent labor protections. But the United States just doesn't really act on them. They don't enforce them. There was a, a GAO report that came out a few months ago saying – we really only enforce the stuff that helps rich people under trade agreements. We don't enforce the stuff on 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 environmental policy, on labor policy. And the Obama administration has been better about that than prior regimes. But a big problem with the current set of agreements is that we're making agreements with countries like Brunei, like Vietnam, like Malaysia that have pretty serious human rights issues. Uh, in, in Vietnam, for instance, there's there's only one labor union and it's owned by the Communist Party. So <laughs> the idea that you're going to be able to have a high standards agreement, you can put anything you want on that piece of paper. But there's no way that Vietnam is going to be able to abide by that without having a pretty serious political reshuffling of, of, of that country. And that's just not going to happen. So, so let me ask you this. If you're a politician, say a President Obama or a candidate for president, Rick Santorum comes to mind, 
but although I don't, I don't actually don't know what position Rick Santorum takes on TPP. But so we'll it's, leave him out of this. Surprisingly, can you blue be collar a, on lots of stuff. Can you be a person? Yeah, let's leave Rick Santorum out of this because he has he is surprisingly blue collar. Um, can can you be a person who talks about middle class economics and improving the stake of people in the middle class and simultaneously be for TPP? Isn't there an inherent contradiction? Um, I, I think I think it's difficult. Um, but is again, the idea is the idea we got to do we got to do something for the middle class now because TPP is going to fuck them so badly. I, you know, got to even it out. I, I I don't think it's helpful to be like super fire breathy about how about how catastrophic the uh, the agreement is going to be because why we first of all we just don't know everything that's in it. But the, all the signs are that it's it's very similar to NAFTA and that it's it's the it's a NAFTA style deal but with with more bigger countries and that's probably not good. But it's not like as soon as that agreement is signed, you know, the world's going to fall off a cliff. The the effects will be slow. They will take years to uh, to, to develop. And and when when they're done, it, it won't be obvious that this this agreement was like oh that was the nail in the coffin for the middle class or something. I, I just think it's, it's, a, it's clearly a step – if the agreement lives up to the, um, the, the leaked documents that have, that have been presented so far, it's, it's very much another NAFTA-style deal and it's going to have NAFTA-style effects, which are just basically a drag on middle class incomes and, and destabilizing for uh, so it's, global So it's like flows. reducing the pounds per square inch of the American football by like 1.2. Well, no. I mean, it makes it easier for plutocrats to grip. Plutocrats <laughs> like Tom Brady. No, I, I think but it's the, much more, it's, it's much more consequential you're rooting than that. for. No, no, but it's it's much more consequential than that because it has an effect on all the other rules. It'd be like saying if deflating Thanks for football, pointing out it's much more consequential than our metaphor. Yeah. I just <laughs> tricked you into saying that the flight gate is bullshit. Whatever. I win. <laughs> But the point is, it would be like saying Deflategate changes, you know, what constitutes an interception or how many downs you have, things like that. But it, they won't happen overnight. Those things will happen over several years. Uh, and and if there will be pieces of it that are obvious and there will be pieces of it that are more subtle. Well, we'll see how it goes from there. Uh, that is what we got today, folks. Enjoy the weekend and Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Yes. Mm. Root against the Patriots. Patriots. Yeah. Go Richard Sherman. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta, Chris Gentleviso, and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Huffington Post senior politics reporters Arthur Delaney and Zach Carter. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store and look for the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.